Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're just up the road from LightEye headquarters in Vail, Colorado, with Stephen Lees. Stephen is a fellow of the IALD and is one of the many whom have helped lead HLB to its current position in the industry. He also has two Lifetime Achievement Awards, one from the ILD, and the second one is just around the corner from the Edison Report. Stephen, it is beautiful here today. The fall colors are perfect. They're stunning. The sun is shining. The leaves are just golden, and in two weeks, they will all be gone, and here comes our favorite season of the year here in Colorado winter. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I've been out here many times skiing in February and March, but first time I'm out here um, during the Aspen season, and it's just gorgeous. You know, there's always a, an opportunity to do something for the first time in life. It goes without saying that you have been in the industry, in lighting, for many, many decades at this point. Yet, I'm sure there's new experiences that you have for the first time all the time these days. As technology grows, as things change, or maybe it's just a simple vacation to Vail, Colorado. Today, we're here to talk a little bit more about your entire career, the words of wisdom you have, what you've learned, and how lighting has really shaped not only you, but your entire life, the people you've worked with, and the impact you believe it has made and you believe can still make on humanity for years to come. Before we dive into all of that, let's go to the very start. Tell everybody, who's Steven and how did you get your start in lighting? I like to tell people that there's still dirt underneath my fingernails from being in theater, which is my first love that I started pursuing at the very beginning of high school, the end of junior high school. Um, everything from acting to directing to designing scenery and doing lighting uh, on a high school kind of way without any really fancy equipment. And then I went off to college and, and pursued it in a uh, you know, formal way. At first, I wanted to be a director. I had been doing some playwriting, and I decided I wanted to be a director. So in sophomore year, I did my first directing class. And as exercises, we had to direct little scenes within the, uh, the, the class. And I very quickly learned that a director's medium is the actor. And I felt like I didn't have enough control of my medium to make me happy and do what I wanted to do. So I very quickly moved over into the visual portion of it and started scenic and lighting design. And um, from there, it's, it was just a wonderful ride, summer stocks. I've been to Berkshires and some professional theater. But then I discovered that to do theater, you have to love it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that you had to give up almost everything else in life in order to have that. And I wasn't ready to do that. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have uh, some children. So I, uh, in a hospital bed up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, after injuring myself lifting a grand piano by myself, duh, I started plotting my way out of theater. And... um, it was not a good time. It was a bit of a depression. And I thought, I can draft, um, I, you know, because uh, back then it was all manual drafting. Or maybe I'll get a job with, and I can do scenic design and, and I could get a job at a museum, doing exhibits, helping with that. I could get a job with an architect, drafting. There are a lot of places where I could use my talents. Nobody was hiring. Eventually, I was being very selective about who, where I looked for a job. I even sent, wrote a letter to um, Cy Shemitz, 
I still have the letter back from him saying, sorry, I just hired somebody. And that's all I got was letters. Sorry, I just hired somebody. You would have been perfect. And I said, well, if it's about timing, then maybe I should just use your shotgun method. And I, uh, I typed up 50 letters, identical letters, except for who it's addressed to on my Olivetti Underwood manual typewriter and uh, sent them out and got three hits and got three interviews. And one of them was Jules Horton. They weren't planning on hiring, but Jules was a visionary and would plan on saving for the future. And he said, we'll make a place for you because it's going to get better. And um, we want you on board when that happens. You used a typewriter, 50 letters, 50 envelopes, I would presume 50 stamps, three callbacks. Just to frame this conversation and how far back it goes and how much knowledge there is for you to share with all of us, I'm guessing that didn't happen in like four hours or maybe even four days. What was the world like when you were exploring an opportunity to plot your way out of that theatrical world and look for a career elsewhere? Well, I was lucky in that I was married at the time, my first wife, my high school sweetheart, and um, was from the Boston area originally, and my parents had moved to the New York area. So we had housing in both cities uh, where I could go around and try to find work, and I would took my portfolio and I'd tramp around Boston and Cambridge, and uh, I remember knocking on, on one door, and it was a nice frosted glass door with the gold lettering on it, three names as an architectural firm. And it sounded hollow when I knocked. And then I eventually saw somebody walking towards the door through the glass. And he opened the door and, and he, said, he said, can I help you? I said, well, I'm out of theater. I think I've got some talents that an architect might be able to use. So I thought, could I sit down with you and, and talk about getting a job here? And he pointed to the door and said, you see those three names on the door? He said, the first two are gone and I'm packing up today. So that's what the world was like then. I was looking in Boston and New York for oh, probably six months or so. And um, I never got depressed or anxious that I wasn't going to get a job. Um, I just was persistent and curious and knew I'd figure it out some way. In 1976, something changed. That persistence and that curiosity was seen by someone that said, I'd like you on my team. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to get that first opportunity and what ultimately would lead to architectural lighting. Well, it became very real uh, because it was the first time I was going to have a job where you go in at nine and you leave at five, mm-hmm. theoretically, at least that's what I thought. And it was I was going to be living in New York City. Now, you know, I, I grew up in Boston, North Shore of Boston, and I knew Boston pretty well. So I figured I was a good urbanite. I figured all out and then really hadn't spent much time in New York City. I came to New York City and said, holy moly. I said, this is a bit bigger. And I really realized I went down on the subway. Instead of a subway, which is like two or three trolley cars long, it was 10 cars that were the side of the size of the bud liners that ran out of Boston for the major commuting. But it felt good to me. It felt good, you know, when you when somebody hires you and says, yes, we want you on your team, you have value. And it, it felt very good for that kind of thing to happen. And so I, I dug right in. I figured out how to move to New York, get a, an apartment, survive. And fortunately, I had a friend from my theater days up in uh, the Berkshires and uh, who helped navigate a little bit of it. 
And uh, as you said, always put one foot in front of the next and, and have confidence that that will continue. If there's one thing that hasn't changed in your career, it's definitely the hustle and bustle and tenacity of New York City. That place has always been alive. <laughs> it, uh, it has always had more energy than any other mm-hmm. city, I would argue, potentially in the world. The attitude of the people is fierce, but at the same time, the passion and love sure. in that city is unmatched. There's the New York moments that everybody has. And, and, it's, and it's sort of the make it or break it kind of environment. And you have to put in energy beyond what you think you could put in in order to really make it. And you're right. But if you don't have the passion to do that, and in in my case, the passion was twofold. It was about the lighting, continuing to paint light on uh, places where people are instead of seeing the the plays that people see. And then that transition after watching Jules run his business for about five years into this company could be run better and seeing a vision of what it might be. Having had very minor experience in theater, of course, in theater, you're, you're always a bit of an entrepreneur from a budgetary and a people perspective. Anyhow, you have to get something done, so you have to figure out how to do it. And if it involves money and people, then you're in business, right? <laughs> At this point, you're a small firm. Six people. You're six people. You're coming into the 80s. There's an opportunity where buildings are being built, technology, isn't quite necessarily mind-blowing in the lighting world, but the opportunity to take light and, as as you said, paint with it, was becoming real in architecture. There was a value in it, there was an opportunity in it, and people would walk down the streets and they would notice it. How did you translate your ability to understand what it meant to use light in a theatrical environment and really, truly recreate theater but almost frozen in time because it was architectural and it kind of sort of had to be one scene that was just set. First of all, I would, would disagree in that there is always new technology in lightings. And that was the beginning of the age of the low brightness parabolic fluorescence. And then fluorescence went from T12s to T8s and metal halide and high pressure sodium, especially metal halides were starting to improve. So there's, there's always a technological movement in the industry that we've had to keep up with which is good for the lighting design industry because it made it more and more difficult for architects to pretend they knew how to do lighting or or even engineers. The painting of the light first required me to start understanding my tools, the instruments I use. In theater, you have really four or five different basic fixture types with very defined distributions. And it's like deciding whether you want to have strawberry, apricot, or blueberry jam on your, on your toast in the morning. Um, you knew what they did. You, it, was just, it was internalized. And you got to use color a lot more, of course. So the first thing was to really understand the tools, the architectural lighting fixtures, which was not just looking at catalogs, learning calculations and all those kind of things, but actually holding the fixture in your hand, turning it on, seeing what it's like, feeling what the distribution is like. I had a stark realization at one moment when I was um, designing lighting for the, what was back then, the new subway station um, in Harvard Square uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The whole station, of course, is being cast in concrete underground, and there's a set of stairways going down, and there's a landing and it was a low ceiling, so the only way to light it really was, at that point, was to recess downlights in the concrete. 
Yeah, no, no big deal. No big deal. <laughs> so I'm doing, okay, concrete pour boxes, all that kind of stuff. Where are we going to put them? And I'm doing the calculations. And, and I think, well, I better get these calculations right. Because in theater, if you've put together the show and two days before it's supposed to open, it's like something's not working. You run up to the flies, you move some fixtures around, you change some gels, and boom, you know, now it's right. You can't move fixtures after they've been cast in concrete. So that was an eye-opening moment when I said to myself, you know, I have to make sure this is right. There's a rigor to this that you have to build in up front because uh, there's no changing later. And, and as we all find out in lighting, to change it later means a lot of money and reputation. It definitely means a lot of money. The reputation comment is interesting. You can only go as far in life as those you surround yourself with when it comes to your team members, when it mm -hmm. comes to your clients, when it comes to the people you work with, the people you work for. They admittingly form your reputation. Otherwise, you would just be sitting there doing everything by yourself. Sure. When you look at what HLB has done, the reputation of the firm is grand. There are so many people that are owners and principals, but have come through your doors, left, have come back, uh, have come and never left. Mm -hmm. There's there's something to be said about that. Looking to the early part of your career, what do you think taught you the most uh, about that You know, relationship building, the loyalty, and the understanding of how you can, should, and will surround yourself with the right people? One of the uh, important lessons uh, that I learned that I stood by and, and used happened when um, Jules was uh, very early in my career was on vacation. Now Jules was European, so he used to take four-week vacations and he was down in, um, I believe it was Costa Rica, hiking through the uh, jungles. And uh, we got a call from Skid Rowings in Maryland, New York, uh, and uh, we were told that um, Jules is wanted uh, by... Um, Gordon Bunshaft wants a meeting with him, and um, Gordon didn't ask, Gordon commanded. Uh, he was that kind of guy, a real reputation, of course. One of the founders or inventors of the glass curtain wall buildings. So I said, hmm, yeah. I gave Jules a call in, uh, while he's on vacation, and I explained the whole thing, and his response was, well, is there any reason you can't come? <laughs> <laughs> that simply. And I said, well, Okay then, we'll survive, I suppose. Um, if he has confidence in me, I should have confidence in myself. So I went, I survived, um, had a one-on-one -on -one concept, heated concept discussions with, with Gordon, a gruff guy, but you know, um, like most of them, when you're talking design, you're, 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 still, you're friends and you're all working towards the same solution. Uh, went on to solve some very difficult problems for him. I uh, worked with the team, built mock-ups for, this is for an airport in Saudi Arabia. And um, it all worked out fine. So what I learned was team. Uh, not just team, but really relying on your team, making sure, A, the team members you have, uh, you can depend upon. B, if you feel they're lacking in some way, help train them up or get them to the place where they need to be. Um, because... You can't do it by yourself. And uh, that's where my vision started of saying, okay, there are a lot of lighting designers in the world that are great lighting designers, but they're like starving artists. 
They don't know how to run a business, even if it's a one-person business. And if I could create an environment, a business environment, where these lighting geniuses, creators, could live and work and not have to worry about all that stuff, let somebody else create that that cocoon for them, then um, you could great, create a, a great, almost like a, a, a lab or a, 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 a what is that uh, turn of the century term, the, the, the study groups um, in Germany. Creating that environment, business environment, that structured environment where you can build a team that really works together and creates the best was, was something that I thought I could do and I'd want to do and it would have uh, make a lot of sense to do. There was a moment in time where you probably said, oh, sh- I've got to go do this. I've got to make it happen. Don't we all have those? Yeah, we, we all have those. Uh, but it was the confidence and the person that led you to then go lead your own ability yes. to succeed. It is so much so true that the person sitting across the table, you may argue, didn't really care who walked in the door so long as they were willing to be a part of their team as well. And it was understanding that that common goal of being united, of looking through one lens together, seven different ways to say we have to solve a single goal, a single mission, a single purpose, is what is so important. When you look at the profession of lighting design and the enthusiasm around, as you said, there's so many people who just want to be these creative engines. What do you take away from your decades of experience of not only being one, but then growing that firm and watching people kind of find their happy place no matter where they are on the scale of drafter to owner. And it might not even be the takeaway, but you know, when you look at the profession and you look at what's been established, how do you give us a report card? I give an A on passion for design. The Report card for business aptitude varies tremendously. It's common that um, somebody with a talent says, "Oh, I, you know, I should start a business like this." And um, do they do they mean I should start a business like this, well, or do they say I'm going to go do what I want and I think I can make money while I do it? Are we talking about you, Sam? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are, and that's definitely what I think right now. So, yes. point well taken. Yeah, no, it, it's yeah. Whether you call it a business, or, I, I think a lot of them think that it's the uh, honeymooners. The the uh, who is it? Ralph Cramden always wanted to coming up with that genius invention and start his own business and be an independent billionaire. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of people say, yeah, I'm good at this. Let me go out and 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 do it in a bigger way and either pursue my passion because I love it or make a comfortable life for myself or some you know go beyond to you know become a multi billionaire or something like that. Although I don't think anybody ever thinks that in the beginning. But who knows these days? <laughs> who knows? I mean tech valuations are through the roof. Mm-hmm. When you look at lighting, when you look at the profession, the people are a big part of it. The people that come into it, the people that dedicate themselves seemingly so or to take a page out of your book, as you told me earlier, in your heart, it's painting with light is what you love. You are truly in love with the theater still. You're truly in love with the ability that light can make an impact that light can do something, that it can motivate, that it can change a space. People are all about it. It's all about people. It's about the people and the passions, designing and building the spaces. And it's not about the spaces or the lighting in the spaces. That is not the goal or the achievement. The achievement is the reaction, the emotions, the feelings 
of the people who experiences those places. That's the ultimate goal. And so it's people from end to end, and the architecture and the lighting is just a way to that. When you say the architecture and the lighting is just a way to that, break down to me what that means to you when you look at a blank canvas. Well, again, I'm from the theater. We always start yeah. with blank canvases. Uh, the blank canvas is you start with the play, and, every, and that's your, your Bible, as it were. And you have to read it and understand it and think between the lines and then think about audience. How am I going to build something in words, in light, in color, in emotion, in a little box that's going to affect people emotionally? And I think that, quite frankly, life these days especially, but even a long time ago, there's so much of it that we want to get away from for a little while. We want to be taken to a little different place. We don't have to worry about doing the laundry and making the supper or the alarm clock or mowing the grass. I want to go somewhere else and experience something else. Take me somewhere else. And it's, I don't think it's escapism. It's a, you know, we like different flavors in life, right? That's why Howard Johnson's made 28 or so flavors. So it's about experiences, life. You go on vacation for an experience. So we can, in theater, you have a mini vacation, but it's all tied around a whole team working together with diverse talents to create an entire world. I mean, they talk about VR these days and all this electronic things, and you can create entire new worlds. It just, oh, like, um, what was that movie? Uh, Player One Ready, right? It's like living in this whole virtual world. Well, back in the theater for hundreds of years, the Greeks have been doing that for a thousand years. Create a, a little world to live in for a while. And we seem to like that. And it's not long. I mean, it's relatable, I think, to a lot of people in our industry in terms of theater, Broadway, musicals, dramas, mm-hmm. all that stuff. It's relatable to the world when you talk about Hollywood. Oh, yeah. When you talk about production, when you talk about the fact that you can literally just sit in a chair and forget you're sitting in a chair or you're in a movie mm-hmm. theater and you can get so emotionally charged or you can have such a visceral reaction to literally a 2D surface. But there's just something so incredible happening in it that it's provoking you. Absolutely. But the whole world isn't in that. And we obviously don't do lighting design and build buildings just for this, you know, the super total escapism. It's about environment and making an environment a more pleasant place. Right? And that may be just an office, but if you can get daylighting in there and the right kind of lighting and you get the right kind of seating and the good air and everything, then it's a more pleasant place and you're a happier person. I think there's a huge benefit in that. It's about, you know, serving, helping people, you know, beyond just yourself in ways that they don't even understand. I mean, went back, I went back, to a, went, went back to a job about a year later and they had changed somebody maintenance to change some of the fluorescent lamps, and we had specified a you know deluxe warm white, and they had changed it to a cool white, and and I said, well, your maintenance team isn't doing a very good job. I'm talking to the director of maintenance, and he says, well, what's wrong? I said, well, they're putting their own color lamps in. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you see, that's like kind of blue, and that's kind of um, yellowish, and he goes, no, I don't see that. <laughs> so. <laughs> So there's, you know, skill levels on all kinds of places. But it, it, I think that, like I said, it doesn't have to be all over the top, mind-altering, emotional moments. 
there are all kinds of mini versions of that that happen during the day in our regular environments. Change is good. Change gives us an opportunity to either experience something different or depart from what's normal in order to maybe come back to it and realize how it is actually still unique. The theater, Broadway, movies, you know, crazy productions, uh, as you said, maybe might be to one extreme. The world of architecture and interior spaces or even exterior spaces that are so beautifully lit as well, especially with LED technology today. There are these subtle moments, and lighting is so much so about them. It's about making sure that every experience is curated and is authentic to that place, that space, that environment. When you look at your career, when you look at the opportunity to, I can only imagine, have touched hundreds, probably thousands at this point. Are there any that stick out to you that you still either remember or you go back to or you think, wow, we really did it good here? I think one of the the things that I started pursuing after I had been in architecture lighting for a while, I had had a spark while I was in college about daylighting. It was crunch time. We had to get ready for the technical rehearsal and opening, and it meant an all-nighter. So we went, we went down to the scene shop on an afternoon. It was a beautiful Connecticut. I went to school, University of Connecticut at stores. It was a winter day. It was crisp, cool, bright blue, almost Colorado blue sky, and went down into that hole of a theater. And, of course, the theater has blocks out all nat- anything from the outside because that would break any illusion of reality in the theater. And... Um, Worked all night, came back about up about 10 o'clock in the morning, still had a beautiful blue sunny sky, but now there was 18 inches of snow on the ground. <laughs> and I go, what happened? What did I miss? Yeah. Um, and um, that sparked a curiosity in terms of daylighting, interestingly enough. So I started self-educating initially on, on daylighting and... Um, Ended up doing a project up in New Hampshire, a small little gallery at uh, Phillips Exeter Academy. Uh, it was basically bermed into the, on the side of, a, of, a, of one of the old buildings, uh, was bermed in, and there are these east-west running vaults, uh, um, skylight vaults. And the exhibit, of course, you have to start with the program, just like you start with the play. The exhibits are going to run everything from sculpture to very sensitive watercolors and antique fabrics and and all that kind of stuff. So you wanted the range of full sunlight to no sunlight and very controlled electric light. And the budget was small, so small. (laughs) So there was no, and and it was pre all the electronic stuff. So I came up with a solution of essentially mecho shades that hung from the middle of vaults and you could pull them to the north or the south or the north and the south, manual kind of system. But it gave the students and, and the art department the ability to create any environment they want. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily, to me, my creation by itself, but it was creating a facility where they could then manipulate and turn it into what they wanted to do. And that, to me, that was one of the more fulfilling ones that I did um, because they just, it was simple. Nobody had to learn anything. You pull it north, south, and whether they un- understood the physics of skylighting and sunlighting 
didn't make any difference. You just move it and see what it's like, and, and, and that's where it is. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier and putting yourself in a place in an environment where the people around you are a part of your team, whether or mm-hmm. not it's who you're designing with, who you're designing for. Ultimately, a design is only as good as much as it is used. You could come up with the most brilliant ideas in the world, but they can never be built. And, and I have to tell you, I, you know, there are huge situations where these incredibly technologically sophisticated energy control systems are being put in buildings. Nobody knows how to run them. And there are reports that the energy consumption is even higher than if you didn't have it in there. So, you know, that's a whole different topic. You know, design, design, doing, doing, because lighting design is not just putting a, a dot on a, on, a, on a reflected ceiling plan anymore. It's, you know, it's about all the, the health and, and the controls and, and on and on and on and on. Light is a medium and light delivers itself into a space. The most important designs are the ones that are used. The most important designs are the one where it's truly thought from start to finish. In the instance of this project you just described with little to no budget, but the need for light, the best solution was figured out because it forced you to really think within what is doable, not what could be achieved. When you look at we've got to do something here versus just hire me and the sky is the limit. How do you think that that has created an opportunity for you and your firm to be successful? Quite frankly, you know, there are a lot of $19 retrofit downlights that can be just effective in some situation as a $350 downlight. And so that, you know, we try not to be elitists, you know, if there's a tool in the box, if it's a stick that I can scratch my oil painting with to get a certain effect, then we'll use it. So it's about getting the right tools. And uh, my philosophy has always been, and, and I think generally, I think it's a similar approach for a lot of people. Is we like to d- design projects in lighting layers. There's the functional layer. There's the all the way up to the, you know, just pure emotional mood layer and everything in between. And um, on a tighter budget project, you don't get as many layers. And I'll explain that too. I'll, I'll do one of my, my regular uh, approaches was to, um, when you're doing most of this in uh, Photoshop rendering, is to do renderings of each layer and then say, okay, here are four layers. And then add them back and forth on top of each other and say, here's what this layer costs. Here's what this layer costs. Here's what this layer costs. You can afford three layers. <laughs> Pick them <laughs> kind of thing. Yes, there are other projects where we didn't achieve what could ultimately be achieved. Of course, of course that's happened. But what is achieved does have a quality to it and, and, uh, and does achieve some of the goals that were put out on the project. There's so much that goes into a project being able to achieve that intent of the design through lighting is just one piece of it this is part one of a conversation that could have many many parts to it so we'll pause here for a moment to reflect on everything that we just talked about and when we come back for part two let's talk more about lighting let's talk about how it fits into the entire industry of the built environment of construction and what it means to truly be able to understand that. Does that sound good? Well, I'm not sure how we're going to fit 45 years into 45 minutes, but we'll give it a shot. One year, one minute. No, one year, one hour at a time. Okay. We're not going anywhere. It's only Monday. (laughs) Okay. I'll I'll order up. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers. Thank you.